Hi everyone, this is Anthony Diaz with The Pop Health Show, a show for anyone in this world that is trying to make more than one person healthier in this world. And I'm super excited to have Rabia Mahmoud on the show. Rabia is with um, Aon Hewitt and um, has she has a very interesting background, but most importantly, I'd love for her to introduce herself, talk about her vast experiences on you know the provider, the um, the the consulting world, but uh, Rabia, welcome to the show, and maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about your background and your origin. Thank you so much. First of all, thanks for having me today. I'm really excited to get to know you better and to be able to share a piece of my story with you and hopefully the rest of your podcast listeners. Uh, so. Tell me about your origin. So I live in Washington, D.C., which is obviously our nation's capital, but it's also the most kind of network savvy city that I've ever been a part of. So I, I really like the way that you framed your question, because when I think about my origin, I don't really think about the bullet points on my resume or what my current job is. I, I think about my parents. And in the time that we live in today, I feel like it's incredibly important to attribute some of my success to my parents who actually immigrated to this country from Pakistan over 40 years ago. So kind of drawing that back into myself and reining it in, I am a Pakistani-American woman, and I was afforded a lot of opportunities that some people don't always get. So I went to the University of Michigan to complete my undergrad degree. And during that time, I really formulated a lot of my passion for social justice and human rights, which really brought me to the perspective of healthcare as a human right. And I was actually able to work overseas in healthcare um, during the time that I was in college, which brought me closer to my decision to pursue public health. So I completed my master's in public health and health policy and management from Emory University in 2015. And since then, I've been working for a consulting firm in a specialty healthcare practice, which designs employer-sponsored health and well-being programs. And I really love it because when I think about public health and the challenges that some public health practitioners face, I'm always kind of struck by the difficulty that people have in obtaining a captive audience. So when you look at employer-sponsored programs, not only do you have a captive audience, but you have kind of a large one. And I don't want to give the misconception that moving the needle on outcomes is easy because it's definitely not. But when you think about a population and population health and the health of our nation. I think an outcome achieved with an employer group of, for example, 20,000 is certainly a significant outcome. And it's something to feel like it's really making an impact on some of our larger public health priorities. So that's kind of what brought me to today. And I'm really excited about the work that I do. Mm-hmm. No, uh, Rabia, that's that's great, great to hear. And an interesting perspective and dimension you're bringing from um, you know, from from a from a social justice, from a civil, from a human rights standpoint, for our audience, um, maybe you can describe a little bit on from your findings and from your background on when it comes to health promotion programs, your work that you do. How does how and if does human rights factor into it? Um, or maybe you can describe a little bit more on on your philosophies on how human rights intersects with with um, health programs and population health. Right. I think that, I think it's relevant in every kind of topic, particularly with employer health. Um, 
I think it's viewed a little bit differently, but just more generally, if you're talking about population health, one of my topics that I'm really passionate about is women's health in particular. So I mentioned that I worked overseas for that short period of time when I was an undergrad, and that experience was truly formative for me in the sense that it shaped my reality of how different societies perceive and access health. Um, So while I was there, I was working in a women's health clinic, particularly for preventative testing and counseling. And I realized that the stigmatization of women's health topics, it varies a lot across societies, but (laughs) unfortunately it's present across all societies. And I remember coming back from that experience and thinking, well, we live in the United States and it's such a developed nation. We have so many resources that we can invest in healthcare, but the stigmatization of women's health is ultimately prohibiting access to care, care, Mm -hmm. which in, in my belief, it's a human right. So, you know, Particularly with my passion for that, like I, I can share a story with you that I think is yeah, is really yeah. relevant to the question that you asked. Absolutely. Um, so during the time I was working for a non-governmental organization, and they focus on an array of women's health topics, ranging from preventative care and counseling to domestic abuse, the abandonment of elderly women, widows in India, and um, I feel like to anyone other than myself when I. When I describe this, it sounds almost like an exaggeration. Uh, But there were moments in that experience which are literally just so etched in my mind. So, for example, I was present in a room uh, with this woman, and she was so emaciated that I could literally see the shape of her bones uh, beneath her clothing. And it was in front of me that she was diagnosed with HIV um, and very likely also with AIDS, but it was unclear at the time. And to follow her story a little bit further, the NGO that I worked with in partnership with different government policies was basically offering her all the medication that she needed to treat her HIV at no cost. And the unfortunate theme to that story is that after she walked out of the room, we never saw her again. Um, And that was because of the pressures that she faced from her family and her physical ability to return to that healthcare site. And more generally, just the stigmatization that she faced. And it's it's a sad reality that that exists. But I think that th- that stigmatization exists globally and it exists today in, in any setting that we really look at, particularly for women's health in the workplace especially. I think that that is what kind of is the barrier to people accessing their human right to health care. Wow. No, that's uh, that, this is a tremendous story. Uh, Robbie, I guess when, when you look at this type of story or uh, I don't know what, what month this happened in, right? But it, there's definitely feels like there's, there's starting to be programs out there that are reducing this uh, stigmatization, right? So do you have uh, something that you're excited about or potential programs or education, or maybe you can speak to one or two things that may be an opportunity in improving situations like this or preventing situations like that from happening. Yeah, I think that in terms of just things that are coming out, I think technology plays a huge role in mm-hmm. people being able to access healthcare and healthcare information privately and mm-hmm. to be able to make decisions in a way that is not coerced or influenced by the stigma that surrounds them. So in particular, as it relates to domestic violence, I know that there are different 
tip lines and text messages that you can send to um, mental health professionals who can support people through those processes. And it's, it, it's really encouraging to see that emergence of different technologies that are meant to kind of support people through kind of what I see as what exists as a flaw. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that those stigmas exist and act as barriers for them to reach the types of healthcare that they need. Mm-hmm. Do, do you feel these, uh, these individuals, um, are you starting to see or feel like they have access to different technology types, like at least a smartphone or is everyone at least on a SMS enabled phone? I know those are different, depending on the country, obviously there's different, there's different trends happening and, you know, just, just wondering on the type of outreach that would vary between someone that only has a text message enabled phone or, you know, just a phone that doesn't have text message enabled, or maybe it's a smartphone. I don't know if you see any, you know, supportive trends at that level. Yeah, I think that, I think that with technology in particular, it's difficult to know what type of technology is going to work in what setting. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the thing that I will say is that when you are able to communicate a piece of health information, whether it be by technology or when you're standing in front of a person who's at a healthcare site, um, I feel like walking away from that, there is so much beyond that one event that takes place. I feel like mm-hmm. there is a lot to be said about the way that socially information is shared among families and communities and different different networks of the way that people are communicating with one another. And so I think that there, there's no real answer to is, is an SMS going to work better than a text mm-hmm. message, better than a mobile app? Um, mm-hmm. Because that really is going to vary based on what kind of environment that you're in. Um, mm-hmm. But one, one thing to not allow to slip away as, you know, the proliferation of technology is just, it's so huge right now. And I think that it needs to be kind of put alongside something that is bringing in a social component and bringing in kind of this component of information exchange beyond that particular device. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. That, that, that helps. That gives a, a, a great perspective on a couple of dimensions, right? So, you know, obviously the human rights perspective, the, the, the woman's rights perspective, and obviously the convergence of communication trends. Um, you, you mentioned something important, I think, which is the social, social element. element. I, I guess with your current line of work, you know, positioning employer wellness programs, or, you know, maybe it's just previous work that you've been doing. Are there other types of uh, trends that have you excited these days um, or different types of programs that have you excited that you'd like to touch upon as well? Yeah. So, you know, I work in the employer space and I feel like some of the concepts that I mentioned, um, they're not typical everyday requests that come from our clients, but I will say that the retention of women in the workforce is becoming a much more salient topic. And I was reading an article recently, which basically discussed paid maternity and parental benefits as one of the larger absence trends in 2016 and something to really consider for how to how to revisit in 2017. And as it relates to maternity and parental benefits, um, I think more generally speaking, employers think of them as kind of standalone offerings. They're generally recognized as recruitment, retention, competitive offerings. 
And I'm really interested in seeing how in the future, how those benefits are going to transform and be reoriented into the broader context of maternal, infant, and women's health, um, mm-hmm. particularly for clients. You know, they're coming, they're coming to a consulting firm to ask them to design some sort of parental leave policy. But, you know, that can be packaged alongside so many additional benefits that have a relationship to maternity through the entire life cycle of a pregnancy. So mm-hmm. I almost feel like we have a really cool opportunity as public health practitioners to bring those solutions to employers and really help them strategize along the life cycle to support not only women, but just parents um, by reminding them that, you know, if you're looking at the healthcare issue of maternity, you can look beyond just paid leave. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's an interesting dimension. Something I just, why I didn't personally, my wife did, right. We have an eight month old and I know she's a, she's a teacher and you know, she had to go uh, for a little bit of on leave obviously to have our, have our beautiful son. Um, but, uh, the way that that's handled, um, I think on a broader dimension does, um, you're starting to see that in the employer sense affect employee engagement, or at least how the employer, it seems, is communicating that benefit or is packaging that appropriately. And it does feel, you know, like there is some sort of opportunity um, with employer groups to really own that narrative a little bit more, right? Because it's not a distinct event. It's kind of like what happens before, what happens after, um, because it's such an emotional thing as well. So, um, so Robbie, no, this is good. This, this really gives an interesting uh, dimension. Um, Robbie, as we we kind of end towards more of the we usually keep these uh, these shows you know between uh, ten to twenty minutes so it can last a, uh, a nice little commute for our listeners. Um, you know, one interesting uh, uh, thing that comes up a lot is kind of like personal rituals and habits, especially for those of us that are in um, health and population health. Um, you know. First 60 minutes of your day, Rabia, is there something that you'd like to share that, um, you know, like, or what does the first 60 minutes of your day look like? Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, being in health, uh, a lot of us like to have our own pet rituals to, you know, whether it's working out in the morning. So just love to hear what your, the first 60 minutes of your day looks like. <laughs> yeah, well, you said it, I work in health and well-being. So in an effort, <laughs> to, balance, <laughs> in an effort to balance my work with my life. Um, I have kind of a strict rule to not get on my computer until about 8.30 or 9. And I actually allocate a lot more time than probably any other working adult to breakfast and coffee. Um, uh-huh. But I typically spend the early part of my day just eating breakfast at leisure and catching up on the news. And it's actually one of my favorite times of the day because I get to spend that time with my husband and my cat. And um, <laughs> it really helps me get my day started uh, from a place of calmness. So I treasure uh-huh. that a lot. Cool. No, that, that, that's a big trend that comes up lately is not rushing into the digital world right away. Um, kind of a tip, how do you do that? Like, so, I mean, I've got my iPhone, I wake up, I look at my phone and how do I not check emails and, and you know, checks messages? How do you, how do you get to that point <laughs> where you don't really throw yourself in uh, to that world right away? Yeah, it's really hard. And this Uh was a challenge for me as well. But one thing Uh that I just recently started doing is to not even having, not even keeping my phone in the same room when I sleep. Uh, Mm -hmm. My husband has his alarm clock, so that takes care of that. And Mm -hmm. I I wake up, I get dressed, put on my slippers, and I don't 
I don't try to Im- immerse myself in the technology right away. And it's definitely hard for everyone, given that we get information so quickly and we just want to see what's in our inbox and what's in the news. But mm-hmm. that's helped me personally, and I really recommend it. That's that's super cool. So I, I heard of Ariana Huffington doing that, and she recommends that. And you know, she's kind of like a uh, a big proponent of sleep now. And I think wrote a book about it. Um, I'm gonna have to try that. I, I quit drinking soda a long, long time ago, and I'm maybe this is my next challenge. So um, it can be broken. But uh, Robbie, this was this was great. Actually, I do have one last question for you before we leave. Um, uh, what is one thing that you believe? that other people view to be insane or set up maybe a better way? What is something that you believe that has not yet been proven yet? Oh my gosh, this is a hard one. Uh, you know what? I think that there might be science to have proven this and I'm not even exactly sure, but if there is, uh, it's not as widely accepted as it should be. Stigma mm-hmm. affects health outcomes. And I feel like I can't reiterate that enough. People who are stigmatized and minorities in different societies who don't feel afforded the same opportunities, it affects their health. And there's so much to be said about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting dimension. And just as you're, you were mentioning about it, yeah, just from your stories earlier, it's just like anything in health promotion or health improvement, how do you quantify that? How do you determine the statistical factors that make the most difference? And how do you put programs programming against that. Um, you know, obviously it sounds in your line of work. That's a, that's a huge sensitivity. And I think you touched upon a few things, uh, um, that, that could definitely help in this area. Well, um, Robbie, this was great. I really appreciate you being on the show. First of all, sharing your story, sharing your experiences and the, the unique dimension of human rights, stigmatization, um, women's rights as well. How does that converge against health promotion and, and, and different trends and programs? So, I think you brought in our minds with, with, um, you know, some interesting topics. Thank you also for sharing, uh, your first 60 minutes of your day and what that looks like. Um, I'm, I'm inspired. Um, I may try and fail with the phone thing tonight, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna try it. And so I'll have to report back, but, um, Robbie, this was, this was so great. Thank you so much for being on the show. We love to have you back. And to our listeners out there, again, this is the pop health show episode i don't know i think this is episode 12 or 13 not quite sure but um hopefully you join us next time and um see everyone later